you know what I really want you to do is to get out your nutshell from last week, this or this week, the one that's, that got handed out this week for Lesson 219. And skip down to the middle because last week we talked about what happens to the people who are, you know, still... We were getting confused about the people who were on earth, the people who weren't, you know, people who were resurrected, people who weren't. And so in the nutshell, I wrote for you um, just a, a brief little four-part summary of what the, how the world is populated at this point. Because, the, first of all, there's everybody who believed in Christ before he came that were resurrected or raptured and have their imperishable bodies. They're, they are physically present in these bodies here on earth at this point. They reign with Christ and presumably are able to pass freely between heaven and earth. These, that's us. And we don't ever die again. Okay? The, the second are unbelievers who were righteous but, and who believed in Christ when he came the second time. That's probably mostly the Jews right there. Okay? I mean, it could be some, some nominal Christians, um, but, but there are going to be some few unbelievers who are righteous and who believed when they recognized Christ because it says the Jews, you know, mourned for him as an only son when they, that, when they saw him coming. Now, these still have their old perishable bodies, and they've been gathered to Israel, to Jerusalem, and have been given health, wealth, extremely long lives, but they still die. Okay, So presumably at death, they go to heaven and wait for the second resurrection, which is going to occur in this lesson, at the end, the end of the thousand years. Then there are those who persist in their unbelief during this time, during the millennial kingdom. Or, you have to think, people are still getting born to the Gentile nations during this time, Right? I mean, if they weren't, nobody would be around at the end of a thousand years. Okay? So there are, there are people getting born during this time with regular perishable bodies, okay, that, it, that die. Okay? Now, what's interesting is that all, a lot of interpreters say, well, once Christ comes a second time, no more chances. You know, you, you're a believer or you're not. But then... What about the people who are born during the thousand years? Don't they have a choice? And, and my assumption is that, even, that, that their cho- they have a choice, but it's an easier choice. Because they were born into a world where Satan had been bound. Satan was not there to tempt them. They're born into a world very similar to the world Adam and Eve got born into. Okay, it's a world that's been restored. All right, and I want you to think of it in that line, light about Adam and Eve. Yes, Satan tempted Adam and Eve. Absolutely tempted, tempted Eve certainly, right? And Eve, in turn, tempted her husband. But remember that God gave them instructions before Satan ever showed up. He said, you can eat of any of the fruit, of any of the trees. Don't eat of this, these two trees here in the middle of the garden. That means that whether or not Satan was in the picture, they had a choice, didn't they? They had a choice to obey or not to obey, whether they were tempted or not. 
And these people, I believe, who are born into the millennial kingdom have a choice to choose Christ or to choose self. It's just a much easier choice because he's right there living, you know, in Jerusalem. He's king of the world. Everybody knows about him. It's, it's, it's a much easier choice, but you still have a choice. Now, some people say, that's not fair. How come they get a choice and Satan is bound and it's so easy and they get saved and there's no sin? And, you know, what, what's that about? And I would refer you to the parable that's printed at the first of your scripture references this week. And that's a parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 20, where he said, there was this landowner once upon a time who needed workers in his field. And he went out early in the morning and he hired some workers for a day's wages. Well, the work just wasn't getting done. He needed more workers. So about lunchtime, he went out again. He, he, he hired some more workers. He said, and he said, you know, I know the day's half over, but I'll pay you a day's wages if you'll come work. And then finally, as the sun was setting, he still needed to get that crop in. He went out and he, he, he asked some more workers to come to work for him for one hour. He said, I, I really need you. I know it's just an hour, but I'll pay you a, a full day's wages for that hour's work. When everybody came to get paid, the guys who'd been slaving away all day said, Hey, how come he's getting, he only worked an hour. How come he's getting the exact same wages I did? And Jesus' response was basically, Can't you rejoice in your brother's blessing? He says, That's what it means that the first will be last and the last will be first. And I think that parable speaks a lot to. Those of us who labor our whole lives, the people who were martyred and persecuted, but who look and the kingdom of heaven is wide open to those who live in a world with no sin. So it's, it's, it's something for you to think about in your own theology and what you think. But that's, that's my, my take on this. And of course, the fourth, the fourth category of people are the people who were wicked, who had died and who are still in Hades. All right, and we're going to see what happens to them in, the, in this lesson. When we left off last week, Satan had been released from his bondage of a thousand years. And he has come back to, the, to earth and he has gone directly to his old allies, Gog and the country of Magog and all their allies. And he's tempted them with Israel's wealth. He said, look, Israel has no walls, no fences. No protection. And look how rich they are. Because at the end of the thousand years, the wealth of the world is under Israel's control entirely. He, and so the nations of the world, tempted by Satan, gather one more time for war. It says there is as many as the sands of the seashore. And they come to Jerusalem. And as we saw last week, God says, no, we're not doing a second verse of this. And he immediately rises up in such fury. He pours torrential rain, hailstones, fire and brimstone down on these armies and utterly kills them. Now, not only does he utterly kill them, he utterly wipes out earth and the heavens. Listen to what it says in Second Peter 3 verse 10. 
The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Well, wait a minute. We already did the day of the Lord, didn't we? The day of, we saw the day of the Lord starting back in the tribulation. We saw a, a climax when Jesus came the second time. But did earth and heaven pass away when Jesus came the second time? No. We know they didn't because we just read all these prophecies and scriptures about Israel and the land being divided up and the nations of the world coming to worship the Lord on earth. So what this passage in Second Peter tells us is the day of the Lord extends through the millennial kingdom to that final battle. To the final day when the earth and the heavens are burned up with intense heat. Now, that's one little rinky-dink verse in the New Testament. What's our rule? If it's really important, we're going to find it where? In the Old Testament. That's right. In the Old Testament. And sure enough, you do. Look at Zephaniah 1, verses 2 and 3. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, this we're just going to look in this class at one of many scriptures that talk about this. The, the things that we're studying in this class are rife throughout the Old Testament. So from now on, when you read the, New Test, uh, the Old Testament, it's not going to be dull and boring to you anymore because you're going to understand where all these pieces fit and you're going to recognize them. But I'm just giving you examples. Zephaniah goes on in that same prophecy to give us details. And he starts with the day of the Lord during the Great Tribulation and he just gives you an overview all the way from the beginning of the day of the Lord to the end of the day of the Lord. Zephaniah 1 verse 14. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen. The day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like done. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all of the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, that obviously was not fulfilled at the second coming, right? So there again you can see the day of the Lord being extended from the beginning of the Great Tribulation all the way through until the, after the end of the thousand years. So now, let's, now that we've got the stage set with the prophecy, let's go back and look at Revelation chapter 20, verse, starting in verse 11. And we've read this several times. I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. You see, at the great white throne judgment is when heaven and earth flee away, are no more. 
And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Now, there's several important points here. One, obviously, is heaven and earth pass away, and everyone's physical body, perishable bodies, die. The people who are still in perishable bodies, that's it, the end, they die. Okay, if they weren't already dead, they die now. Now, the people with imperishable bodies, we got a question about. Now, what happens to them? There is no earth, there is no heaven. They're in imperishable bodies. What's happening? Well, fortunately for us, there is an answer recorded in Scripture because somebody asked Paul that very question. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 35, 57. But someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. Now what he's saying there is our physical body now is as much like our new imperishable body as a seed is like the plant that it produces. But God gives it a body just as he wishes, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So obviously, just as different seeds produce different plants, different types of bodies have different characteristics. Animals are different from men. And he applies the same principle to men And to angels and other heavenly beings, okay, who are referred to as the heavenly hosts throughout scripture. So while men have earthly bodies, heavenly beings have heavenly bodies. So let's keep reading. So also is the resurrection of the dead. He's finally getting around to answering the question. He's very long-winded. Thank goodness for us because we get a lot of detail that way. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. The fact that it's imperishable means it cannot die. When we are resurrected, we receive an imperishable body, according to Paul. And that means it's a body over which death has no power. Furthermore, he says, our earthly body is a body of weakness. But our new imperishable body is a body of power. Look at the vocabulary. The earthly body is called a natural, perishable, earthly body. Natural in this context means it's born of nature, our current home, right? 
Our imperishable body is called a spiritual body. Spiritual in this context means it is born of our new home, heaven. Okay? It doesn't mean we're ghosts. A spiritual body is not a ghostly body. It's a real body. It's just a body that is born of heaven, not a body that's born of earth. It's a real powerful body, he says, much better than the one we have now. And he goes on to explain it some more. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. It's just as if there is a seed, there is also a plant that goes with it. Same analogy. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. And the last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But look, the spiritual is not first, but first the natural, then the spiritual. So first the, the, the body from earth, then the body from heaven. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So, in addition to being weak, the problem with the earthly body is that it dies. But God is immortal. And if we're going to live with him forever, we need bodies that can keep up. Okay? So, he gives us bodies that don't wear out. Paul continues with his explanation of this in verse 50. Now, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Then he goes on to tell us exactly how we get our new, powerful, eternal body. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. Now... Think about that for a moment. There's, there's several, that's a very profound statement. The seed didn't go away, right? The seed yielded its plant, which yielded its fruit, all right? The seed fell into decay. But always within that seed was that genetic coding, you know, we carry the promise of our eternal bodies in these bodies that we have now. We are still the same person. The apple seed does not produce a mustard tree. Okay? We will not become something different. We will still be us. When the saints were resurrected in the first resurrection, they received their imperishable bodies, right? By definition. Well... Where were they for the next thousand years? Here on earth. Right. They were physically living here on earth. And yet they were in the imperishable bodies that inherit the kingdom of God. That live eternally with God. Pardon? Will we look the same? same? Great question. And I didn't... I I may have... Huh? Well, actually, we, we know a lot about the characteristics of it, and I may get to this later. Let me look real quick and see if I ever covered it in this class. No, I don't think I did. But remember when Jesus came 
and died and was resurrected. Think about what happened after that, okay? Now, theoretically, he was resurrected into an imperishable body because he did not die again, right? It's not like Lazarus, the, the brother of Mary and Martha, who died in his perishable body, was raised back into his perishable body and had to die all over again sometime, okay? Jesus was raised into an imperishable body. Now, he was not recognized by Mary, when the first person who saw him. Remember that? In the garden, she thought he was a gardener. So he couldn't have had flippers, okay? He had to look somehow human. But he didn't quite look the same. And it wasn't until he spoke to her and said, Mary, look at me. And she looked, because back then a woman would not have you know, looked directly at a strange man. And then she recognized him. That happened several times over and over in, those, in, the, in the encounters during that 40 days he was with us after he was resurrected. In addition to not being recognized at first and then all of a sudden their eyes would be open and they would recognize his spirit is what they would recognize. They would recognize the essence of him. We know that he ate. He could be touched. He could be touched. That's right. They, he still had scars, remember? All right. It was, he was very tangible, but he was also very powerful. If you remember, he would appear in rooms that were locked, okay? Which kind of gives some weight to my thoughts on this subject that we are able to pass between heaven and earth like the angels do. For one thing, they're heavenly bodies. You can't tell me they can't go to heaven, Okay. So it just makes sense. We know they function on earth. We know they are for and from heaven. Okay? It just makes sense that we're able to pass back and forth like Jesus did during that last 40 days. So I think that just as our bodies are, are human but are a poor reflection of God and Jesus whom we're made in the image of our glorious heavenly bodies will be so much closer to that truth but they'll still be bodies and they'll still function so do you think Jesus stays in that imperfect body forever? okay the question was (laughs) the question was does Jesus stay in that imperishable body forever now Jesus is different than man okay Jesus is God so and God is spirit but Jesus was the part of God that became incarnate, all right? Before he ever came to earth, he was God. He was the Word. It was through him everything was created, right? He came to earth, took on our cloak. I believe he will always be able to put on that cloak. And, and I per- it doesn't say in here specifically what happens, but it seems obvious that at least during these thousand years... He's physically reigning on earth and he's touchable. We can talk to him. You know, he's very accessible even though he be God. Now, we will find out and watch as we read through this. There comes a, a, a part where he says he will, he will reign until all of his enemies are put into subjection. Until, until all of his in- enemies are brought beneath his feet. And when that happens, the last enemy to be conquered is death. 
You're ruining my lesson. I'm going all over the place, but that's okay. (laughs) The last enemy to be conquered is death. And when that happens, Jesus will do what he existed in this part of the Godhead to do. And that is to turn all of what he has been given back over to the Father. At that point, will Jesus need an imperishable body anymore? I don't know. I just never, you just had my wheels going. I've never, I've always considered Jesus is is God. Everything that's happening to him is divine. I never thought about him using that same method as the question, the comment was, I never thought of Jesus as using the same method. You know, I've always thought of him as divine, never thought of him as using the same tools and physical existence as we do. And yet he came to that manger and used that same physical tool. Why would he not use that same physical tool? Well, that's a good question. So this is it's not definitive. Part of the Trinity is being in a that's right. I guess, I guess so. <laughs> so food for thought. There's, there's a lot of this that we're studying now that is going to be, you know, people are going to have different opinions. I'm just presenting what, what, what I see here for you to think about. It is very neat to think about. And, um, and we don't, as Christians, think about what we're, what we're studying today near enough. Heaven is a huge Blessing and a huge promise and something we can really look forward to and something we can understand here on earth. We've been kind of taught nothing about heaven and we've lived on, on, on kind of the Santa Claus theory that we were taught as children. You know, very often it's not very tangible to us. But here in Revelation, we're going to find out some very tangible things about heaven. And if at the end of this class you're interested at all in, in hearing more about it, I'm preaching on this subject at the Laura Chapel this Saturday. And there's, there's uh, maps on the table if you wish to, to come out. I'm going to cover a little more about just heaven itself than, I, than there is time to do in this class. Let's look at, finish up verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then it will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when everyone has been resurrected, death's power has ended. The last enemy will have been brought into subjection to Jesus Christ. So let's go back and reread that passage in Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them. So since earth has fled away, obviously all the old physical bodies died. There are no perishable bodies left at this point. Heaven has also fled away. The heaven we go to now when we die will no longer exist at that point. God prepares a new home for us. And we're going to learn about more about it in a minute. But for now, everyone has been resurrected. Wicked 
good, bad, everybody, and is standing in the throne room of God. It's time for the great white throne judgment. Now, this passage describes two judgments. One, uh, the judgment of death or life. It's a yes or no kind of judgment, very specific. The other is a judgment of rewards based on our deeds. Now, up to now, we've been, if we're following the thread of what's happening to the Christians, we've been resurrected and have lived in our imperishable bodies for a thousand years here on earth. We have already been found in the book of life. We are not judged at this point from in that point, in that point of view. We are already in the book of life. In fact, Jesus specifically said we do not go through that judgment because we already received eternal life. Look at John 5:21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him, God, who sent me, Jesus, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Every person in this room is covered by that promise. You, if I ask you, everybody in this room who absolutely knows for sure they're going to heaven for eternity, no question about it, raise your hand, every hand should go up. Every single hand in this room. You know for sure you're going to heaven. Your name is in the book of life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That, that phrase, he gave the judgment to Jesus because Jesus understands. What it is to be a man. Of course God does too. But, but Jesus came and lived in this body with us. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And will come forth. And those who did good to a resurrection of life. Those who committed evil to a resurrection of judgment. Now if you look closely on your um, scripture references, you'll see I omitted the words deeds from that last verse. And as we talked about earlier, whenever you see a, a, a word in italics in this particular translation of the Bible, it's a word they have added for clarity. It was not in the original Greek. So anytime I see little italic words, I go back and look to see, I, I reread it. See if the sense would change if I omitted that word. All right. And sometimes I agree with putting the word in. And sometimes I think, you know what? I'm not sure that word helped any by adding that to the scripture. And in this case, I, I, I think although the translation is accurate, Jesus is referring to works. But he's referring to the works in the sense that they are the fruit of your spirit. Okay. It's not a work. It's the fruit collectively of your spirit. I rewrote that ver- those two last verse 
or two in kind of an amplified way, giving you the full sense of the Greek. So here it is. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who yielded, provided, and bore good to a resurrection of life and those who repeatedly, habitually practiced evil to a resurrection of judgment. And then I've given you in your scripture references the two Greek words, poieo and praso, with the Strong's definition so you can see you know, kind of where I got that amplification from. See, the sense of goodness or evil here is much more organic than just the word deed would communicate to us. The way I read it, Jesus was referring to the fiber of the person. And he said in in verse 24 that if you heard the word of Christ and believed God the Father, you already have eternal life and you will not be judged because you've already passed from death to life. And he clarifies that further in verse 29 when he says when the saints are resurrected, they're resurrected directly to life. But the evil face judgment when they are resurrected. Now, Jesus talked about this a lot. Jesus talked about the time of the kingdom of heaven a lot. After you're finished with this class in Revelation, go back and read chapters 24 and 25 in Matthew yourself. And read the parables where, God, where Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven. And, and ponder them and think about them. Because he's talking about this time period when the kingdom of heaven is established. Both on earth during the millennial kingdom and in the eternal order. Look at Matthew 25 verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we do all these things? And the king will answer and say, Truly, I said to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, that second death, that lake of fire, was never intended for men. It's God's will that all be saved and none shall perish. But men make their choice. And Jesus says some men are going to go to hell. They are going to this second death. Even though it was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. Because you did not do the things that were listed here. He said, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Then we get to the part where, in addition to the death and life judgment, which, which those who are, of us who are already believers are not subject to, there is also those other books that were opened. Remember the other books? And those were the books that had our deeds in them. The, the works that we have done. For those, every man will stand in that judgment. 
Christians, wicked, righteous, unrighteous, everybody is judged according to their deeds. But it is not a judgment that determines life or death. In this case, for the Christians, certainly, it determines our rewards. If you think about it, our deeds certainly determine, they're the fruit of our spirit, right? Okay. Our faith is what saves us. Our faith in Christ is what saves us. We can never work our way into heaven. We can't work our way into the book of life. But our belief in Christ, the real belief in Christ, becoming his child, becoming spirit, is what yields the fruit. It will naturally yield fruit. And to the extent that we yield fruit and continue to grow and mature and walk with him, Great will be our reward in heaven. Because on this earth, it will look very different to people. We're going to be persecuted, right? Killed, chased, starved to death, slain. And yet, all the while, we'll be, we will be standing where Christ wants us to stand. Doing the works that he prepares for us. And now's the time those works are read and we receive our reward, that crown that was promised to us. Paul talks a lot about this. Look at Second Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And go on to First Corinthians 3 verse 8. Now each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day. That is, in this case, the white throne judgment, will, the great throne judgment, will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So at the great white throne judgment is when we receive our rewards. Let's look back quickly at some of the rewards. I think I listed them in your scripture handout so you don't have to flip. Um, Some of the rewards Jesus himself promised here in Revelation. He promised to him who overcomes to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Not to be hurt by the second death. To receive some of the hidden manna. And a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows but you. Authority over the nations. Rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As, I, as Jesus also has received authority. And I will give him the morning star. We will be clothed in white garments. Jesus will not erase our name from the book of life. And he will confess your name before God the Father and before his angels. He will make you a pillar in the temple of God and you will not go out from it anymore. You will write on, he will write on you the name of God, 
the name of the city of God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and Jesus himself, new name. And lastly, he says, you will sit down with me on my throne. This is summed up in Revelation 21. Start in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling of God, is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And this is all happening after the great white throne judgment, after the old heaven and earth have passed away, and the new heaven and earth have come. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So at this point, the old heaven and earth have passed away. Death, Hades, all the evil spirits in Hades, Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all the wicked have been thrown in the lake of fire, the second death, where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. They are still aware it is death in an eternal sense. And when you go back and reread those parables... In, in the Gospels where Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. He talks frequently about the fact that there is this place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now the righteous at this point have received their reward. God says he's making everything new and he's going to dwell among men. What does that look like? Well, back up to verse 1 and 2 in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, we get a new heaven and a new earth to live in with our glorious bodies. Okay. Now, is the new heaven and the new earth going to be worse than the old heaven and the old earth? Probably not, right? It's going to be far, far more glorious and far, far better just as our new bodies are going to be far, far better than the ones we have here. But are these going to be ghostly heavens and earths? No. They're going to be very physical heavens and earth. If you think about it, if you, if you never had enough money to travel in your retirement and just hungered to see the world... You're going to have a chance. You're going to be able to climb the mountains. You're going to be physically able to do all the things you have never physically been able to do before. You're going to have the time to do all the things you have never had the time or the money to do. 
it's going to be incredible. Now, there's that weird phrase in there. There will no longer be any sea. What's that about? All the people who love to sail go, oh, man, you know, I, I don't want to go to heaven. <laughs> I, I'm a sailor. <laughs> well, let's talk about that for a minute. You know, one interpretation that is pretty common is that when it mentions that the sea will give up her dead, it is mentioned as a reassurance to Christians that even if you died in such a way that you have no physical body left, that you will still be resurrected. Because, you know, a, a body thrown into the sea, I mean, it's gone, right? There, there is nothing left to be resurrected, okay? I think that is an absolutely true statement. If your body was disintegrated, as in, you know, September 11th kind of thing, my God is powerful enough to give you a new body, you know, to resurrect you no matter how destroyed you were. He made you in the first place. Okay, He can resurrect you from whatever condition you're in. I don't think that's the message here. Okay, I think one possible explanation is that the sea in Revelation seems to be consistently linked to Hades in a spiritual sense. Think back. I didn't put the um, references in here, but remember in Revelation 13 that the beast, the Antichrist, came up out of the sea and that we knew from other scripture that Jesus had told us that, that, that he came with the spirit of lawlessness from Hades, okay, from the abyss. Okay. That the sea in that case is a spiritual view of the real place, which was the abyss, okay, which, which that spirit came from. In Revelation 18, remember when we studied about Babylon? And a mill, the millstone was thrown into the sea to indicate absolutely how destroyed Babylon was going to be. And remember how Babylon was described as the home of all evil spirits. Okay. Here in Revelation 20, again we see the sea giving up its dead just like Hades does. We talked in an earlier lesson about the pigs that ran instinctively into the sea after they were filled with the, with the evil spirit. I think somehow there is a spiritual link there. And I think this passage in Revelation is saying that link is now broken. That, that, that evil has been overcome. I personally think this is a spiritual statement. I think there will be water in the new earth, okay? And even if I'm wrong, even if what it's saying there will be no sea anymore physically is correct, I think there must, by definition, be something much better than that for all the sailors in the world, okay? Um, I, if you look back at Isaiah 57 and the uh, 21st, it, it's the course, what you're saying about the uh, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot raise and whose waters cast up mire and dirt. It's Very much linked to it spiritually. Right. Great. Thank you. Thank you for adding that. So this is another thing to ponder. It's not definitive, but it is my sense from how the sea is used in Revelation. 
at any at, at any rate, we can be assured we will have some place to swim and sail and party and have a great time. We will work and play and eat and live life to the fullest in our resurrected bodies, just like we did in the millennial kingdom. They're the same bodies. The only difference is it's only the righteous here and we get a brand new heaven and earth to play in. Okay. Now, did I say we would eat? Yes. Remember the wedding supper of the lamb? Did you think he was kidding about the food? Look at, look at Revelation 19 verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I have thoroughly enjoyed reading a book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. He also has written a terrific book called The Treasure Principle, which is a very small little book on giving that you should I would recommend to everybody. Very small little book. But Heaven is a big, big book. But it's organized in such a way where it, you, can, you can look up like questions. Well, will we have bodies in heaven? And you can look that up and then there's a, like a chapter kind of thing. It's, that, it's organized like that. The name is Heaven. The little book is The Treasure Principle. And I'm going to read you an excerpt from Andy Alcorn's book, Heaven, that I thought was great. Have you ever bought an economy ticket for a flight, but because of overbooking or some other reason been upgraded to first first class? Did you regret the upgrade? Did you spend your time wondering, what am I missing out by not being in the back of the plane? The liabilities of economy class are removed in first class, but the assets aren't. You go from little legroom to lots of legroom. From an adequate chair to a comfortable one, maybe, maybe even one with a footrest. Rather than just a sandwich, you get a meal on real plates. The flight attendants keep filling your cup, give you a great dessert, and offer a hot hand towel. In other words, it's not just the bad things about economy seats are minimized. It's that all the good things are made better. The upgrade from the old earth to the new earth will be vastly superior than that from economy to first class. It may, be, it may feel more like an upgrade to first class from the baggage hold. Gone will be sin, the curse, death, and suffering. In every way, we will recognize that the new earth is better. In no sense could it ever be worse. That's on page 269 of his book. So look at the description in Revelation 29, 29, Revelation 21, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. 
the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square, its length as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured the wall 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And he goes on to name them. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. He's talking about pure gold as it is refined in the fire, transparent. It is so pure. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The bride of Christ is this new Jerusalem. Now, at first that seems like a mystery. You know, how can Jesus marry a city? You don't marry streets and buildings, do you? No. The city is its inhabitants. Remember the Old Testament imagery. God God called Israel his wife. Yes, she was a whoring and unfaithful wife. But Jesus came because God loved that wife tenderly and compassionately. In the New Testament, Jesus is sent to redeem this beloved lost wife. And he succeeds in completely washing away her sin and clothing her in righteousness. Look at Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So here, clearly, he says the church is his bride, right? Well, that makes sense if we are joined with Israel as the new Jerusalem, right? If if we're one and the same, then by definition, this new Jerusalem and the church would be the same, okay? The only difference is, that we are able to be part of Christ now, okay? Because we believe now. Continue. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The the mystery is how Christ can be married to us, not how we can be married to each other. 
We understand that. The mystery is how can Christ be married to us. And remember, the Jews rejected Christ at his first coming. It's not till his second coming that they finally accept him. And during the thousand years, they're taught about him. They lived in his light throughout the millennial kingdom, as we just read. And now, finally, in the eternal order, Israel and, and the church, Jew and Gentile, are fully united as the new Israel, the new Jerusalem, beloved of God, coming down from heaven as the bride of the Lamb. Now, depending on how you interpret this, We could be the bride at the wedding feast and the angels and other spiritual beings could be the guests, right? Or we could be, and this is what I think, we are the bride collectively, okay? But we experience the wedding feast as individuals. Just in the same way, I think I explained a a lesson or two ago, that when we go to war as the United States, we go to war as a nation, but as we experience it individually as soldiers. Okay. That's how I see this happening. It's not clear, but, but that's what makes the most sense to me. Some people believe that the marriage feast happens at the beginning of the millennial kingdom because clearly the passage that we just read before was a picture of, of Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. And, and they say that the wedding feast happens and the church is the bride of Christ, and the Jews are the guests. Okay? Because remember, they're still in their perishable bodies at that point. I find that hard to believe. After all this trouble, and all this effort, that God would leave the Jews out, they're the ones he came to save. I, seen, I just can't see... Him not making them the bride of Christ. That's what the whole thing was about from the very beginning. But it is a very popular view and one that you need to ponder on for yourself. In any event, one way or another, we know we're there. We are definitely at that wedding feast, eating and dancing and laughing and celebrating. And I wanted to take just a quick little aside here. We're going to go over maybe five minutes today. But a quick little aside because a lot of people are concerned about marriage in the eternal order. And the reason is because Jesus got this question. Um, look at Mark 12:25. The Sadducees asked him about marriage. See, they gave him the example of a woman who had had seven husbands and said, well, who's she married to in the eternal order? And Jesus says, When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, for the people who dearly love their spouse, that's where they say, I'm with the sailors. I'm out of here. You know, I I don't want to go to heaven if I can't be with my husband, you know, or my wife, my beloved spouse. And so I have three observations to give you to think about. One is... That God created Adam and gave him Eve before the fall. While the world was still in its perfect, original, perfectly designed state. At that point, there was no institution of marriage. Because there was no sin or temptation to make that boundary necessary. Remember? In the new heaven and earth... 
we will have no need to be married to each other because we will all be married together with each other to the Lamb. Okay? It's kind of like right now we have a little marriage. We're going to have a great big marriage. Okay? When, when we go to heaven in the eternal order. We will continue to have wonderful, deep relationships with each other. Spirit to spirit. Okay? Person to person. In the very essence of being. Definitely. I'm not sure sex enters the picture. Sex is a reproductive function. And people who are single here on earth aren't missing a thing. You know? (laughs) I mean, it's just... I don't think it's something we will miss at in the least. It, 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 will be, it won't enter our minds because we will have that direct communion person to person that sex actually achieves okay, here on earth in a, very, in a very limited way. Now, the other observation, second observation I would give you is God would never give us a snake if we asked for a fish according to Luke 11.11 and according to common sense. We can be completely confident that God gives us whatever he gives us in the new heaven and earth will be far better than what we have now. I would urge you not to try to micromanage God. And lastly, we can be assured that our families, our loved ones, our spouses will be there and will be recognizable to us. Because their spirits never died in the first place. They still exist, just in new, strong, imperishable bodies. This is very scriptural. Long after death, Moses, Elijah, the beggar in Luke, Samuel, and many others are called by their names and are recognized when they appear after death. They're recognized for who they are. We still have our personalities. We will still have the spirit and the soul that makes us unique. And now we've come to the last chapter in Revelation. And it needs no interpretation. So let's read it together. Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren the prophets and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. 
for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. You have a handout also called the End Times Worksheet. It is your handy-dandy quick reference so that if you remember something we talked about but can't remember where it says that in the Bible, you can find it very easily using this grid. If you have one from Lesson 210 or 211, somewhere around in there, it has been superseded. Please throw it away. I deleted the old one from the web. This one is is new, improved, and completed version. Um, I'm sure it's not perfect, but it gives you a great structure to to start out with. Um, And uh, we need to pray. Lord Jesus, I pray particular mercy on me for teaching this book and ask that, that you bless and honor these words and that your word not return void as you have promised that it will, it will yield fruit in these hearts, in my heart, in the hearts of all who hear. Lord, I, I ask for your forgiveness and your mercy and say I have no, had no intention of adding any words to this book or deleting any words from this book. And I ask for your, for your grace. Lord, please take this seed and let it bear fruit in all our lives. Let us and our descendants after us be the righteous who stand and fight to the end the ones who overcome and who come to this very great reward. Lord, I ask a special blessing, as you promised, on each person who studied and listened. In your most holy name, amen.